back into the series that we've been talking about. It's lost and found because really the whole theme of Luke chapter 15, it's kind of almost like the pinnacle of the parables that Jesus is teaching during uh, his ministry. Jesus teaches about 60 parables that we know of, at least, that we have scriptural records of. <coughs> Excuse me. And the parable of the prodigal son is the longest of those, and that's kind of the culmination of Luke chapter 15. We talked about the parable of the lost sheep. We talked about the parable of the lost coin. And all of this comes out of questions from the religious leaders of Jesus' times, the Pharisees and the scribes particularly. They were looking down upon people. And if you've missed any parts of our series, let me just kind of encourage you to go back. You can get the CDs out in the foyer area. Those are free, by the way. Um, you can get online and listen to them online. But there's just a lot of details that we miss in our culture because we're thousands of years removed that Jesus's audience would have caught right away. And so let me encourage you to go back and catch some of those things. Jesus is teaching about the joy that God receives, the joy that God gets out of one individual person repenting. And there's so many lessons that are packed into the economy of Luke chapter 15 that we could just take almost a year and talk about it. I mean, I feel like I'm going slow enough verse by verse, but there's so many uh, amazing lessons. There's lessons that we learn about salvation. There's lessons that we learn about God's great joy when, when He saves us. There's lessons that we learn about God's grace, God's forgiveness, lessons that we learn about our own attitudes towards God and our own attitudes towards others. And and our attitudes towards others when they profess to have repented. And I don't know about you, but there's times that I have to do a heart check and a mind check when, when somebody says, oh man, you know, I, I really want to follow God. And kind of in my mind, sometimes I think, oh, do you really want to? Because I know what that really looks like. And so it's fascinating how this is a great parable to do that kind of mind check, that heart check. Um, lessons that we learn about our own sin and our own personal barriers to knowing God better because let's face it, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even a single one of us. We have all inherited the sin nature. We were born into it. Even baby Elijah, as beautiful and small as he is, he is wicked. Um, now that wickedness hasn't started to come out yet, um, but he is he's sinful. He's sinful because he's born with that sin nature that we've all inherited that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he is in need of a redeemer, just like you and I are. So none of us, by our own goodness, can make it to heaven. Today we're going to see, uh, again, genuine repentance and how it is humiliating to actually look at it from a distance. You know, there's times to where when someone is genuinely repenting, it's humbling, it feels humiliating, and actually people looking at us from the outside might perceive it as kind of humiliating. And, and you know, at the end of the day, that's the beauty of repentance because we come to the end of ourselves and it's the beginning of a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what we kind of see in this lesson is that sometimes... It takes extravagant means for God's grace to take us to a place to where we finally turn to Him. 
Sometimes some of us are privileged that we don't have to go that far, but others of us, we, we know that we need that wake-up call. Or maybe we don't know that we need that wake-up call, but God knows it. So let me kind of take you back to Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. So if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. You might want to take some notes. It's okay if you write in your Bible, by the way. It's okay to take notes or to highlight or something that's meaningful to you. I have it up on the screen just in case you don't have it. Uh, But Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, this is what we have come to call the parable of the prodigal son. And as we've talked already, um, that's really probably not the best title for it because it's really about three different individuals and the whole story is about God's grace and repentance and God's great joy when one of us repents and we get to look at repentance from different angles. I I think especially in our American Christianity, we've come to just look at the prodigal son because we call it the story of the prodigal son and we tend to put aside the older brother. We tend to put aside the father and so Hopefully, we're kind of tasting it again for the first time and seeing some fresh things here. Verse 11, and he said, he being Jesus, he's getting ready to teach. Remember, the Pharisees and the scribes are all angry that Jesus is, is reaching out to people who he would call um, people of the earth. Um, and this is what Jesus says. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that's coming to me. And we've talked about the details of how just a slap in the face and how disgraceful, disrespectful, how he violated the fifth commandment, which was honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the day or in the land which God is giving to you. Okay, so he's violated the fifth commandment. And basically what he is saying to his father is, I wish you were dead. I just want your money. That's Go back and listen to the details, and we explained why. And he divided his property between them. We talked about how shameful of an action the father did here that he even bent into his, his younger son's request. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. We talked about how he liquidated all of his inheritance. He kind of a fire sale, sold things, and that violated all kinds of mosaic laws and how disrespectful. This, this kid's becoming a villain very quickly in Jesus's story. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out. Now we're going to pick up in verses 14 and 15 again here this morning, but just to follow along. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And so he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Catch that. No one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go with my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, verse 20 says, and came to his father. But while he was still a long 
way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, remember he's been rehearsing this, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. And we'll talk about this here in a week or so. That was probably the father's robe. And put it on him. Put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He's lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Well, here comes another twist and turn in Jesus' story. Now, the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, he being the older son, of course, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you gave me, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he was found, and hence the title of our series, Lost, Lost and Found. Father, this morning, as we dive into your word once again, I pray that you would reveal to us your truths, show us your ways, Convict us in areas that we may need to change in our own attitudes of heart and mind and challenge us to grow in our faith. Father, if there be one here who believes that they're too far away from you to be rescued, I pray that you would show them that no one is out of your reach. If there be one here this morning who is convinced that they know you and yet you know the reality is that they don't know you. I pray that you would reveal that to them. Show them your ways, your grace, and your love. So we ask this today in the gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, um, I left off right around verse 16, but there's so many things that are packed into each of these verses that I got to go back just a little bit so that we can catch up. So in time of famine, um, it was everybody for themselves, right? Especially among people that this young lad had come to know. And we talked about in previous weeks how this young lad, the company that he had surrounded himself with was probably kind of the leechy kind of people, the people who are around as long as you have money or as long as you have something to entertain them, as long as you kind of are the party person. But when that party ends, so does their relationship or their friendship or their so-called friendship. And 
Those are the kind of people that you really don't want to hang around as friends. In verse 15, it's interesting because our translators have done something I don't, I don't understand. They've done something that they translated that this young man, what he did in a severe time of famine, all the money is gone. We talked about last week how, how the Pharisees and the scribes, and even in the scriptures, we see how we can, can interpret a time of famine as God's judgment upon a region or upon a people. And so when the Pharisees or scribes heard that this guy had done all these things, that Jesus had painted the, the picture of the vilest of people that they could ask imagine and then then he says and then a famine came the pharisees and scribes are interpreting that as see god is getting ready to judge him just wait here it comes it's just like jonah going and preaching repentance to nineveh remember and then he crawls up underneath a tree and he's just waiting for the hellfire and brimstone to come down and consume nineveh right do you remember that in the old testament and then God doesn't do that. The people of Nineveh repent, and God has to teach Jonah uh, this, this amazing lesson. When the word hired comes up, it's, it's really not really the English word hired, uh, and, and so it's confusing to me why they, they did that, because I think a lot of times what we would think is, man, see, he's, he's trying to make something of himself. He's beginning to turn here, and he's beginning to see how he really um, you know, was too big for his britches, so to speak, and now he's ready to go and humble himself and hire himself out. But the problem is, is that the Greek word doesn't mean hired at all. In fact, the word that we translate as hired, in the Greek, it literally means glued, And here's the picture that Jesus' audience would have understood that I think we misunderstand because of the word hired in our American or in our English translations. Jesus' audience would have seen that this kid is going and he is, he just won't leave this rich citizen alone. He becomes the tail. And this rich citizen finally says, okay, go, go to the fields, would you? And there's a different attitude and there's a different perspective with that kind of an understanding than he goes and he tries to make money for himself. Basically, what he's tried to do is he's tried to become a leech to this rich citizen and tried to give him favors. And his hope is, is if I can do him a favor, maybe he'll do me a favor. Maybe he'll take care of me somehow, just a little bit. But that's not what this rich citizen does. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. The Bible says that no one gave him a single thing, right? This rich citizen who he had just become an appendage to, he's kind of like, get away from me. And he sends him out into the fields to take care of pigs. The, the young lad is hoping that oh, I'm going to do him a favor. And he sent me out here and he's going to take care of me somehow. And that's not what the story says. And so I think that it's helpful to us to understand that the word hired literally means glued. And there's a different attitude in there. By this time, his resentment that he had probably went through, he probably went through all these different stages and phases in his mind and in his heart. 
He had probably felt rejected. He had probably felt resentful. He had probably felt wishful. Oh, man, I wish I didn't ha- spend the money in the way that I had spent my money. If I had been a little bit more conservative, this time of famine wouldn't have meant as much to me, and blah, blah, blah. He probably went through all these things. And then he goes to this degree to where he's just flat out desperate. Desperate to do anything he can just to survive. And that's how he attaches himself to the citizen. That's how he ends up in this field feeding the pigs. As we talked last week, no good Jewish person wants to have anything to do with pork or pigs. No good Jewish person. And so Jesus is bringing this this young lad down lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. In fact, what ends up happening here is there's a statement that's made that the, the Jews would have caught, and just because our culture is, you know, quite removed from their culture, especially in time and distance, we don't always catch what's happening here with the carob pods. Every, in times of, of drought, even in times of severe drought, the carob tree still produces pods. And so the poorest of the poorest of the poor will go and gather these pods and they'll eat the pods because there is flat out nothing else that they can do. In fact, normally these pods are used to kind of even feed swine. And that's what you see the picture of here. And in fact, these are even just something just to get by because we talked about how this is a rich and wealthy citizen for him to even have a a herd of pigs during this time of famine I mean that shows that he's pretty wealthy and he's able to kind of sustain but he's trying to feed them something that's um, going to have some value to it but not cost as much as other types of grain or other types of feed that they normally would have fed, fed the pigs And the pods that are being talked about here are carob pods. Carob pods were food for the poorest of the poor in the worst conditions, and they were also used for animals. And they were typically used for animals not in times of plenty, but in times of want. Remember, a famine has hit the whole region. There's a rabbinic teaching that Jesus' audience perhaps would have been familiar with. Now, we don't know exactly when this rabbinic teaching came about, but we know that it was somewhere around the time of Jesus, and so it's possible that this is one of those phrases that Jesus' audience would have caught, and that's why Jesus talks about the carapods in his, in his uh, parable. A rabbinic tradition teaches that when the Israelites are reduced to carapobs, then they repent. It would have been a phrase that would have been taught in synagogues. It would have been taught by rabbis, and it would have been just kind of a catchphrase kind of thing. You know how we have phrases now that we're just kind of all familiar with? This could have been a phrase. We think it was a phrase that would have been familiar during Jesus' time, and so the Pharisees are beginning to see something different than what they were actually expecting. Because when the Israelites are reduced to carapods, then they repent. And it just so happens that what happens right around this same time that he's reduced to carapods, he's coming to his sense, his senses. 
And I find it fascinating, oftentimes we have to be reduced to nothing before our hard hearts repent. Have you ever thought about that? I find it fascinating that it, it seems like in times of crises, in, in times when, when people are going through some of the most difficult times, that's when they start to think about spiritual things. And, and you know, that, whether they're going through it because that's just the way life is, or whether God has somehow orchestrated them going through those circumstances, I believe the picture that Jesus is painting here in his parable is that God has divinely orchestrated the circumstances that this young lad is going through in order to drive him to a place of repentance. And there's people who need God to drive them to the end of themselves so that they finally come to a place to where they're saying, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Because think about this. This is so tough for some people. They've lived so long in a particular lifestyle. It's become a part of who they are. It's become a part of their identity. It's been a, become a part of their friends. And, and really, everything that they are are associated with those things. And those things may be things that are taking them far away from the will and the design and the plans of God. And God needs them to come to a place to the end of themselves to where they finally say, this is it. I, I've got to turn. I can't keep going down this path. And I believe that's exactly the lesson that Jesus is teaching us about this prodigal. While the Pharisees and the scribes would have been expecting that God's wrath would have been poured out upon this prodigal, God's grace and his love has put him through his own living hell, so to speak in order that God would lovingly bring him back to himself. Now, isn't that a good and gracious and loving God? And listen, when we go through those times, they are not fun, are they? I, I mean, so many thoughts run around in our mind and our hearts. Why am I going through this? I can't believe I'm going through this. And then we have people that we've associated ourselves with, and they're talking about all these things that we know are outside of God's will. I find it fascinating. This young lad, listen, he knew what God wanted. Remember? He knew what God wanted. How did he know? What, he was a Jewish lad, and every Jewish lad would have been taught the scriptures, especially when we begin to see the character of this father unfold. We begin to know that this is a good father. This is a gracious father. This is a loving father. He has taught them the Mosaic law. He's taught them the way that he should be. And yet this lad is choosing to reject what he knows. He knows he should be doing. But it's that thing, those things that his father had instilled in him at an early age and bringing him up, that what happens? It comes back to bless both the father in the end and the son. Because why does the son repent? Why does the son begin to turn? Because he remembers who his father is. God brings us low so that we might be prepared for him to draw us near. There are times that because of our hard-heartedness, because of our spiritual condition, that God needs to keep taking us lower 
and lower and lower. And uh, right, our hope and our prayer for our friends and family members is they don't have to keep going too low, right? We want them to repent before it gets any lower because we love them and we want them to turn. But oftentimes it is God prepping the stage, making everything just right so that at the right time, that person turns. Listen, in the mind of the younger brother, he probably assumed that if he did favors for the wealthy citizen, he would receive food from the rich man, but he didn't. How do I know that? Verse 16 says, no one gave him anything. It didn't say that the rich man said, come back after you take care of the pigs, and I'll pay you something. It doesn't say that. It says it just sends him into the field. It's because he just wanted to get rid of him. And really, that probably would have showed a little bit of anti-Semitism that was taking place in the parable as well. That these Roman citizens, that's what this guy was, that's why it says he was a citizen. He was somebody outside of Israel. He was a Roman citizen. He was a wealthy Roman citizen. He just wanted to get rid of him. No one gave him a, a single thing. No one had anything to give this son of Abraham. Now the twist that the Pharisees and the scribes didn't expect, the younger son, out of brokenness, and I find it fascinating, this brokenness is not driven by this theological astuteness, right? Brokenness is not coming to him because he's realizing, what a dork I was to my dad, what a jerk I was, what a, 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 a putz I have been. And that's not what drives him to brokenness. What drives him to brokenness? His tummy, his stomach. <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating that that's what takes him to a place to, of desperation. His stomach is what makes him plan to go home. Verse 17 says, he came to himself. He came to himself because his stomach was hungry. He had nothing to put inside of his tummy. He had nothing to fill him. He had no one to take care of him. He didn't have any friends left. Everybody who he thought was friends, is they were off. They were probably trying to take care of their own business. And then he begins to think about the things that he's known for years. Dad. My dad. My father, he's done all these things things for me. I shamed him, and he still did all these things for me. And then he begins to think about his father's workers, and this is how we also know that this this is a boy that comes from extreme privilege. He, out of utter desperation, he comes to himself, and and because of the circumstances around him, and God uses all sorts of things in our lives to draw us near to himself, doesn't he? Have you ever had one of those light bulb moments, maybe spiritually, or maybe about life? It's not because we're so brilliant or so wise, is it? It's just that sometimes the strangest things is what triggers that aha moment for us. It's the circumstances that we're in, the pain that we're going through, the sickness that we're experiencing, the problems that we're experiencing, suddenly God does something, he uses those things, and we begin to see what Romans chapter 8 is talking about, that all things work together 
for the good of those who love Jesus. Even those of us who have yet to learn how to love Jesus, God is still working all things for our good. What evidence do we know that he begins to think about his father? He begins to suspect his father would be willing to forgive him. How does that even enter into this guy's mind after what he had done to his father? And that's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking. After what he had done to his father, how in the world could he ever consider going home? They had already had his funeral. How do I know that? Well, I'll I'll teach that here in a couple weeks. But they had already, what would have been customary, what would have been according to Mosaic law and according to Jewish tradition, they've already said their Kaddish over him. They had done a funeral. In fact, we see it said twice, my son was dead. They had had his funeral already. How in the world could he go home when they had already had his funeral? Talk about creepy. Creepy for the family, creepy for the community, creepy for the son. But what drives him home is he begins to think about his father's love, his father's compassion. How do I know those things? Let me show you. Whoops, I I don't have that up here. Verse 17 through 19, I want to point that out to you. Verses 17 through 19. When he came to himself, here's what he said. How many of my father's, here's the key, hired servants. Now, in our English, we probably miss an awful lot of that. But in Jesus' audience, because of the Greek, we get to see that's not a person who is a regular full-time employee in his father's care. And that helps us to see what's happening. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough food, but here I am and I perish with hunger. I'll rise and I'll go with him and go to my father and you know what it says there. Twice we see the prodigal son think about his father's hired servants. Here's what you got to get. I'm going too ahead here. A hired servant was not a regular employee, but a daily employee. So even after his violent rejection of his father, he still realizes the generous nature of his father because he's thinking about these daily employees. Listen, you know the picture that we could paint in our mind is you've seen it in the movies and some of you have lived it through the depression to where um, there was so little work that you had to go out and daily hire yourself out. And sometime there would be work to hire yourself out, and sometime there wouldn't be enough work to hire yourself out. That's the kind of employee that the, that the young lad is remembering, a person who is a daily employee. So this person is going to go work for a day's wage, and out of a day's wage, these kind of people have more than enough. What does that mean? It means the father's being really generous with his wages, right? He's got to be giving quite a bit of money to these daily employees for them to have more than enough food. He's saying even people who work for my father on a daily basis, and some days they work, some days they don't, they have plenty of food, and here I am. I'm in this circumstance to where I'm just, I'm famishing away. The young man knows his father's generosity because he sees that people who work for him, they have plenty. His father is generous. His father is kind. His father is compassionate. And we haven't really seen those character traits yet of the father. 
but we've read them in verses that we're going to. What he begins to think of, and the reason that he goes home, is because he remembers who his father is. By the way, if you have a prodigal child, do you know how important it is that you keep and maintain your integrity, your love, your kindness, and your generosity? Because when God takes them to the end of themselves, they're going to remember how you treat them. They're going to remember who you are and how you love them. They're going to remember how generous you are, and it's based upon those character traits that they'll return. And ultimately, those are character traits of our Father in heaven. Well, the the barriers to going home were enormous, as you could imagine. First, you had the distance just because of the practical barrier. Remember, he's gone outside of Israel. We've talked about how we know that. He had a fortune when he left home, and that would have definitely helped him when he traveled outside of Israel. But now, he had to make it home on his own. Didn't have anything. So, I mean, that becomes a pretty big barrier to travel on foot that sort of distance. Then you have the cultural barriers, of course, and he would have been considered dead to the community and his father. When this man is coming to the community or even approaching to the community, the community would have rejected him. By the way, that's the reason that the father runs to him, is to protect him from the community's complete rejection of him. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. He had no right to be accepted back home. He had no right to be accepted back in the family. And in fact, these are things that violate the cultural traditions of Jesus' time. So his barriers were big. He knew that he would suffer humiliation. He knew that people would sneer at him. He knew that people would talk about him. But he didn't care. Why? Because what was he banking on? He wasn't banking on them. He wasn't banking on how other people looked at him. What was he banking on? His father's love. That's all that mattered. That's all that mattered because he was the only one that he cared about pleasing anymore. He didn't care so much about anybody else. Just the generosity and the love of his father. So what does he do? He rehearses over and over in his mind what he's going to say to his father. Have you ever done that, by the way? Have you ever rehearsed what you're going to say to somebody in a difficult... Guys, did you ever rehearse what you were going to say to your wives when you proposed to them? Guys are like, no, never. Yeah, I know all you guys did that. You thought through what you were going to say and how you were going to do it. I always call my proposal to Jamie the, the, the good proposal that could have been. I had it all planned out, and then there was a tornado warning that just washed it all away. So it was just one of those things. It was going to be outside and out nice, and just as the sun is setting over Marble Lake, it was going to be out on the boat and all this kind of stuff, and was going to be so wonderful. And I thought that for, my, for me, I have like zero romantic stuff in me. I thought that was really good. That tornado warning. Seriously? You guys, have you ever rehearsed in your mind these kinds of things? Um, gals, have you ever rehearsed stuff in your, in your mind? Have you ever rehearsed what you would say at a job interview? Why do we do that? 
Think about that. Why do we rehearse these things? Because we're almost anticipating what the person is thinking. We're anticipating what they're going to say. And so we want to have the right words for the right moment at the right time so that we say the right things so that we can achieve the desired outcome, right? I wanted to say the right things to Jamie so that she would say yes. You know, it's not such a good thing to go, oh, oh. She probably would have been like, what are you talking about? We, we want our words to be right. And this young lad wanted his words to be right so that his father would just accept him back. Now listen, there's this cultural thing that would have happened, this expectation. Even in the worst, the absolute worst of circumstances, there's mosaic pro, um, um, there, there's, there's mosaic um, allowances the, the father could have accepted him back, but he wouldn't have been treated as a member of the family. He would have had to earn the small fortune that he had, had given away. He would have had to earn that back. And that's why he says, listen, put me in a place that I'm the lowest of the low workers. I, I know it will take me forever, and it probably won't even un, end up making up for all the money that I've lost to make that money back, but Put me as one of your daily workers, and that's all I, that's all I want. I, I don't want to be back in the family. I know I can't be back in the family. And these mosaic allowances would have provided a very uncommon allowance for him to be in the lowest of low positions, almost forgotten about, out in the field. And is that what the Father does? Not at all. Not at all. I've already said it, find it interesting that what drove him home was not the realization of his offenses of the father, but his stomach and his condition. He saw himself, he saw the problems he was in, he knew where he had to go to get help. It was the only place he could turn. So what does he do? The text says he gets up and he heads home. Now I don't know for sure we can't know for sure, but the, the sense that I have picked up out of the direction of the story and, and how Jesus is crafting this parable is I wonder, I doubt, if this guy even went back to the citizen to say, hey, I just want to let you know I'm leaving. This guy's kind of being a jerk to him anyhow. He, he just wants him gone. He's not paying him anything. He sees all the, the pig slop and he longs to have even what the pigs have. And he has this, oh my goodness, moment. He comes to himself, himself and I wonder, did he get up right from the spot where he was at and start going home? He didn't have anything to really gather. If he did, he probably stopped just long enough to take it. Probably could have been carried with his hands, not like he left when he left home. And I think it's this, this wonderful picture because when we repent, right, we don't stop to think about all the other people and we don't, we don't start thinking, oh, you know what, I better go tell so-and-so goodbye. I better go tell them that I'm not going to be hanging out with them. We just turn right to Jesus because we know that Jesus loves us. I, I think it's a good picture of God taking us low. We'll have to wait till next week to see 
what happened when he arrived at home. A couple things to take home. You should see that this prodigal is a painting of every Christian. By now, I hope that you're picking up on this. I hope that this is not, nothing new to you if you've been here for, for parts of this series. I, I think it's fascinating. You know, we can look around us and we can point out individuals who have gone down the wrong path or they're in places that are far from God and, and we, we could say, you know, that that person, I, I bet you they're a prodigal. But the reality of it is, is that each and every one of us is a prodigal. Each and every one of us is far from God. Each and every one of us has rejected God. There's not one of us that is righteous, not even a single one of us. No matter what you do, you can't be righteous before God. No one was born into a right relationship with God. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. And we must be careful to remember that we too are sinners that are saved by God's extravagant grace. When we have that humble reality sink into our mind and our heart, you know, it doesn't put that much distance between us and the prodigals, us and everybody else. What it does is it removes these, these barriers. I, I, I love the story, um, Dave Stevens, um, who is the who was the director of Camp Katubix, gone home to be with the Lord just in the last couple of weeks. Snuffy and I got a chance to go down and, and have a, a wonderful conversation with, with him and Sandy just a few weeks back. And I, Dave shared a story with us that was even shared at his funeral. It was so wonderful. Is it, it, it was just this realization that Dave had this moment. He had looked at all these folks that were coming to church around him and seen their tattoos and seen all the different markings that they had had and people who had, right, had a past. And that was hard for him. And he had this moment that it came to him that they're just like me. And, and he confessed to them, and he asked for their forgiveness because he realized that it's all the same. None of us, we could, we could go to the vilest places on this planet, and we can think of the worst criminal and the worst crooks, we're just like them. Sure, maybe we haven't done what they've done and all those kind of things, but do you know that each and every one of us are in just as much of a need of Jesus Christ as the other? And it's only by God's extravagant grace that we've been brought home. That's hard for some of us who've come from really good families to remember. Because maybe we've never been that one to go off and to do certain things. We always must remember that no matter how good we are, it's not your goodness that saves you. Furthermore, in that same vein, no one's beyond the saving reach of God. No one is beyond the saving reach of God. And it should be our heart, it should be our prayer to pray for, for even the vilest person that we can think of. To not have a heart or an attitude to where we wish and want anybody to go to hell because that's the attitudes of the Pharisees and the scribes. And if we have that attitude, boy, you better stop and do a check in your own heart and in your own mind because you don't have the attitude of Jesus if that is in your heart. 
in case you have missed it, Jesus is painting the worst picture of the worst person possible. That's what he does, and we miss that, I think, in our culture. He's painted this horrible picture. The scribes and the Pharisees would have been like, oh, talk about somebody who deserves to go to hell. And yet, Jesus paints this picture of his redemption and not his wrath. I don't want you to miss that. It was beyond the comprehension of the Pharisees and the scribes that this guy could have any favor in the eyes of his father, let alone in the eyes of God. So let me encourage you, don't limit your prayers to people who you perceive are redeemable. People who you think are good enough. Don't limit your prayers to that. Let me encourage you that you pray for miracles in people's lives. And what, what ends up happening is we safeguard our own hearts and mind through the power of Christ Jesus when we begin to pray for others. We begin to count ourselves as low. We begin to see ourselves on the same level as everybody else, and it paints a picture of humility for us. It keeps us humble by praying for others. Lastly, you need to recall that repentance is turning away from yourself and a turning towards God. Don't ever forget that in repentance, you're turning away from something and you're turning towards something. Ultimately, what drives us towards repentance? Isn't it our Heavenly Father? Isn't that what the Scriptures teach us? That no one can come to the Father unless what? Unless He's drawn. God is in control of even the craziest of circumstances. And in this case, God uses man's stomach to bring the young man to repentance and ultimately towards being a reconciled, a reconciled relationship with his father, a reconciled relationship with his community, and probably not really a reconciled relationship with his brother. In fact, what we're going to see before we finish this parable is what ends up happening is the older brother, do you know what he does? He kills his father because of a great hatred for him. So isn't it comforting to know that if God can use a stomach to bring someone to repentance, then he can almost use anything, right? To guide our friends and our families, our associates, our neighbors towards right relationships with him. Listen, we don't need to be theologians. We don't need to be the one who can quote every scripture, even though that we need to write the scriptures upon our hearts. We need to be saturated, permeated by the scriptures. It's ultimately God using the most bizarre and strangest circumstances to bring us and reunite us to a loving relationship with him. Let me encourage you. Um, I don't know what your schedules are, but make it a point to stay in this, in this series with me. You're, I, I just got to tell you, I think that you're going to learn an awful lot in this series about your relationship with Jesus Christ, my relationship with Jesus Christ, and the amazing ends that God went to redeem us and love us.